Language warning. Very adult content ahead. What troubles you, my child? Hello, sinners. Welcome to Confession Booth, where just by listening, you get to absolve your deepest, darkest, most disgusting, embarrassing, and surprisingly heartfelt secrets. I'm A.H. Cayley, and my guilty feet have got more rhythm than you could ever imagine. Eddie Sharp is a comedian, writer, curator, and host of Verses on FBI Radio in Sydney. Today, he takes us deep into his childhood, his psyche, and the inner walls of what may have been a closet, but probably wasn't. When I was seven in primary school, I used to play a game at lunch where I'd loosen the laces on my school shoes and then kick my leg as hard and as high as I could, launching a Clark's brand missile across the playground. It was a big playground, and where it landed was never an exact science. Sometimes it would disrupt a game of hopscotch, or ricochet off the wall of a demountable like a pinball, or if I was lucky, it would hit someone in the back. (laughs) I would play this game alone, of course. It's not the kind of game you play with others, or the kind of game that occurs to you if you have a lot of friends. (laughs) One lunch, my shoe got jammed in a tiny gap between two buildings about a story high, and there was no way I was going to be able to get it back. When I returned to class, my teacher, Mrs. Bylos, asked where my shoe was, and I told her that my classmate, Paolo, had beaten me to the ground, (laughs) stolen it off me, and thrown it there. Paolo was a pretty badly behaved kid, so he was an easy mark, and she believed me. He, of course, denied it passionately, and that only made things worse. The principal was called in, And then the whole class went out into the playground. Classes were called off. We all went out into the playground. And we're made to stand in a line as we watched Paolo climb up a ladder (laughs) and into the tight crawl space between the buildings to fetch it back for me. I still remember the look in his eyes when he handed the shoe back and apologised through gritted teeth. There was a lot of anger and a lot of injustice in his eyes, but even worse than that was the look of resignation, as if he was learning a very significant lesson for the first time. This is what the world is actually like. It's worth mentioning, with added regret, that Paolo was the black kid in school. I don't think that's why I picked him, but he already had a chip on his shoulder about it, and he got teased a lot about it, and... I can still remember standing there with my blonde, curly hair as I sanctimoniously said, I forgive you, Paolo. (laughs) Like a Nazi villain in the first scene of a biopic. I know it's not the craziest story that's ever been told at Confession Booth by a long shot, but it's my clearest memory of real, true, gut-wrenching guilt. I've done many, many much worse things since then. As a preteen, I started two park fires and numerous bin fires. I was suspended from school at 12 to tr- for trying to sell pot to other 12-year-olds. And I was expelled from that same school about a year and a half later for similar reasons. None of those 12-year-olds wanted my pot, by the way. They were generally just understandably terrified and went straight to the principal. I was a little bit ahead of my time. 
I did acid at 14, and by 15, I was bonkers for ecstasy. I knew my drug dealer would be out of town when I was about 15, so I broke into his family home to steal a stash that he kept under his bed. I climbed through his window and carefully tiptoed into what turned out to be his family's dining room, where his family were all (laughs) eating Sunday night dinner. The five of us just froze there, terrified, for a few minutes, eyes wide, food unchewed, no sound at all except for funniest home videos blaring in the background. And then I just turned and jumped back out the window. All of these are terrible things, obviously, but if I'm being totally honest, looking back, I don't feel too bad about them, and I didn't feel too bad about them then either. Just that moment in the playground. That's the only one that haunts me. It was my first real shock of guilt and shame, and it actually stung. They say the first cut is the deepest, and I think this is true of most feelings. I'm sure back in 1978, when then-18-year-old serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer killed his first drifter by the name of Stephen Hicks and masturbated on the corpse before taking his dismembered remains deep into the woods to fling them around himself in an arc while spinning and laughing and crying, I bet he paused for a moment and said, you know what, I'm a real jerk. But by 1991, when he was sitting in his Milwaukee apartment, chowing down on the legs of a 22-year-old Ernest Miller, surrounded by skulls and other body parts of his 17-odd victims, he probably just thought something like, there's no point in dwelling on what you can't change, or I'm doing the best that I can, or nobody's nerfect, or something like that. I do feel a little bit bad callously using horrific deaths of real victims for a cheap joke. And now I feel fine. That's how it works. Maybe it's the wisdom that comes with age, or maybe it's the Lexapro talking, but these days, nothing I do really touches the sides. There's no dark midnight of the soul for old Eddie Sharp. And all evidence suggests that I'm still a terrible person, and that's totally fine. I sleep like a baby. I don't really have secrets either. Anyone who knows me will tell you I'll tell them anything. I'll tell anyone anything, gladly. Strangers, anyone. I have an overwhelming urge, for example, when introduced to people's newborn babies or elderly grandparents to slap them as hard as I can in the face. (laughs) I don't think I want to. It's just that compulsive fear because it's the worst and craziest thing I could possibly do. And the fact that I technically could physically makes my palms itch. I haven't done it yet, but that's just an example of the kind of thing that people should keep to themselves. (laughs) The idea of a confession is a profoundly Catholic one, and that's just not the way I was raised. I was raised godless by very new age parents who only wore sarongs around the house. (laughs) And while the sarong upbringing may have exposed me to more low-hanging adult testicles (laughs) than I would have liked, it also made me believe that I'm a special snowflake who can do no wrong. So I don't really feel I have much to confess. But I will, I'll tell you something that used to cause me a great amount of stress. It was my deepest, darkest secret that I held on to for years and one of the few things I never told anyone. It was a small, niggling voice in the back of my head that said, Eddie, you're gay. You're so gay. 
You're so gay and you'll never tell anyone and the shame will eat you from the inside until you get big gay cancer from the stress. And you take this knowledge to your grave with your beard beside your hospital bed. I stayed in the closet for years. I first became aware that something was up in high school when classmates brought it to my attention. You're a faggot, Sharp. It was usually what they said or variations on that phrase, you know, you get the gist. A lot of people let me know. As a very emotional kid who was in all the school plays and then grew into a very emotional man who now works in the theatre and loves small dogs and has mostly male gay friends, I just carried it with me as a fact that I was too terrified to ever explore. That was until a few years ago at a New Year's party on mushrooms when I kissed a handsome sculptor and I felt something awaken within me. Not being one to keep a secret, as you know, I immediately began to tell my friends. Guys, I'm gay now, I said. <laughs> no, you're not, said my friends, who were all gay. Stop being stupid. I started to accompany them to gay bars more often and danced to Kylie and occasionally I would briefly kiss a fellow on the dance floor and then quickly rush back to our table, giddy as a bi-curious drunk girl at her year 10 formal. I didn't love kissing those guys, but I figured this was a whole new world and these things take time and there's a teething process. My velvet mafia, who hated me calling us that, <laughs> initially saw me as faintly adorable and ridiculous, like one of those sheep that thinks they're a dog on unlikely animal friendships. Eventually, however, the novelty wore off and they found it boring and vaguely offensive how balls deep, pardon the expression, I was on the whole gay thing without actually doing anything gay about it. I'm pretty competitive and I don't do things by halves, so a few weeks later I just thought I'll show them. And I drank a bottle of red wine, steadied my nerves and headed into the city to Bodyline to finally prove how wrong they were. For those of you who don't know, Bodyline is a gay spa in Darlinghurst. Once you've paid the $20 entry fee, you're free to go inside and just really knuckle down with being as gay as you like, whether or not you want to. On the bus on the way there, I imagine what the place would be like. I imagine it might be like one of those vampire nightclubs from True Blood. <laughs> Lots of black marble and red velvet curtains and a, like a chain link fence and maybe people who look like Alexander Skarsgård who wore black leather pants and they would have like long cocaine fingernails and roaming around with pirate shirts unbuttoned to the waist and everything would be in slow-mo and people would be biting each other's necks and moving really fast and Nine Inch Nails would be playing and it would just be very, very scary but also really, really sexy. <laughs> Upon paying my money and entering Bodyline, I put my clothes and belongings in a locker and was given a towel and that's all you can go in with. I suppose so no one takes photos or carries a weapon, which is sensible. Upon entering, the first thing I saw was a distinct lack of Skarsgårds. <laughs> you know those Daily Telegraph articles where a disgraced conservative politician is caught exiting a gay spa at 4am and he looks a lot like a splotchy pork sausage in a tracksuit? <laughs> well, most of the people look like that. But obviously, Stan's tracksuit. And that was what I first saw. The sausage men bobbing about like a group of liberal backbenchers as they were being cooked for dinner in a bubbling spa. <laughs> the spa itself was kind of cool. It had a fake white marble edge and Roman-Grecian sculpture positioned at one end, I guess a sly nod to a period in history, which surely was the golden age of bumming. <laughs> I considered 
these pink, raw men for a moment as they lazily jacked each other off and thought, not for me, and moved on. And from that point on, I gotta tell you, aesthetically, the place took a massive downturn. Whoever the interior decorator was, he had clearly blown his load on the spa bath because the rest of the place had a real fuck it aesthetic. It was pinewood walls and floors painted black with dim lighting and smoke machines and dirty ramps that led upstairs to more dank black pinewood mazes. Actually, if you've ever been to a suburban laser tag, that is exactly what a gay spa looks like. But different, obviously. Um, less adorable kids and more sort of men just sitting on benches looking back at you, through you, with a kind of thousand-yard police line upstairs. Just a a guy limply hanging from a bondage harness like a hunkberry. Just guys kind of half-heartedly putting their dicks through peepholes waiting for stuff to happen. There wasn't a lot of chatting or eye contact. As I slowly wandered around, taking in the sights of this gay safari, I distinctly remember thinking, fellas, where's the romance? It was then that I began to suspect that I wasn't gay, or maybe only 5% gay at most at a stretch, which was something of a disappointment. As a grown man, there isn't much uncharted emotional terrain left in my world, and this newfound gayness had been as exciting as discovering a hidden country. But it wasn't to be. I'd like to tell you that I just calmly duffed my cap, which I wasn't wearing, uh, and left the place upon this realisation, but I still have that memory of me jiggling frantically at the exit door and pleading to be let out. With red wine-stained teeth and a sudden flash of full-blown gay panic. It's maybe the only shameful part about that story. It was pretty soon after that it just joined the ranks of other stories I will tell anyone who will listen. Dinner party guests, cab drivers. I even talked about it on my community radio show where it was broadcast across Sydney to literally tens of people. (laughs) Growing up, I'd always been subtly terrified of being gay in that way that most young men are. I would always leave a seat between me and a friend at a cinema. I would punch a friend in the arm rather than hug him, stare straight ahead at the urinal. It was that prison of self-regulation with the constant fear that there was a barely contained homo-ocean welling up inside of me, threatening to burst forth at any moment. But I've got to tell you, when I finally just leaned into it, I was surprised and then kind of crestfallen to find not much there. So that's it. That's the closest... Thing to a confession this humble, bicurious sociopath has. And I don't feel that much shame about it, obviously. To end on a quote from the Paisley bookshelf of my sarong-clad hippie parents, I'm okay, and you're okay. Good night. Eddie Sharp. I think in this instance, okay is a bit of an understatement. That was Eddie Sharp being absolutely wonderful at Good God Small Club. That's all the dirty, dark secrets we've got for now. But up next time, comedian, writer and co-host of Triple J's drive show, Lewis Hobber, tries to get a massive weight off his shoulders. And one hand, very gently, very slightly, almost infinitesimally, grazed my right testicle. And remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud and your favourite podcasting app. If you don't like Confession Booth, do not give us a rating and a review on iTunes. But if you do, open Slather. I'm A.H. Cayley. I'll see you next time.